Romans chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Good morning. And thank you, worship team. I was just thinking I could probably never lead worship because I get emotional, and then I can't sing. It's a terrible problem. So thank you for doing that for us. (laughs) Um, uh, This morning, um, I I first need to talk a little bit about myself. Um, uh, The elders approached me, I don't know, about a month ago, and asked if I would consider, at least for an interim period, being an elder. Um, There isn't a short-term eldership available, at least for a year. The reason for that is that I am still not exactly sure of our future. Maybe we'll be in India in eight months. I'm I'm not sure. Um, But I, uh, I have spent a lot of the last four months sitting in a hospital room, and I feel like I've been sitting on my hands quite a bit, and if I have opportunity to do anything related to ministry, I'm pretty excited about it. So, um, let me tell you a little bit about me first. I'll try to limit that to about 10 minutes. I don't like to talk about myself very much, Um, although the scripture does say that our testimony has power, so we shouldn't be ashamed of it. Um, and then we'll take a little time in God's Word. So, I was raised in a Christian home. My father had been involved in the ministry of the Navigators. 
for some time before he got married. And my mother also had been in, in ministry. She was actually born in India, but she was involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college campuses for some time also. So my parents were people of ministry, and, and my father was, although quite an introvert in many ways, he was very disciplined in prayer and very disciplined in, uh, on his desk at home, he had little stacks of scripture cards. I mean, and not just two or three, but like 20, 20 stacks. And he constantly was memorizing scripture. Um, and from a very young age, that was pounded into me, the power and value of scripture. And it, it is powerful in our life. Um, I, I learned at a young age also to speak fluent King James. My father, when we would rise to go to school in the morning, would be reading for our benefit out loud the Bible. And as we would get up and eat breakfast that period of time to when we walked out of the house to catch the school bus, we would hear scripture in King James, the good King James, all of that time. Um, And so early in my life, God's word... I would say, infused my life. It was an amazing upbringing in that sense. Um, My father was also very faithful in other ways. I guess I'm not telling his testimony, but I want to just give a sense of of the input in my life. He, He was the youngest of six brothers and sisters, none of whom knew the Lord Um, from his youth. He was saved during World War II on a ship. And then he prayed first for his parents and then his brothers for 40 years. And, And I'm here to say that prayer has power. Um, four of those five brothers and sisters came to Christ. In 40 years, some of them took All of that time. Um, Of course, he prayed for us too. And and I'm confident my mother and father's prayers, my grandparents' prayers. My grandfather was a a missionary in India um, on my mother's side. Have had impact in my life. Um, The... My love for Christ and, and my commitment to the gospel and to the word of God is largely because of my parents, my grandparents' prayers, how significant that is. Um, As a young child, I grew up, um, again, my parents loved me. I had godly influence. But there there was a period of time I I went, um, much of my upbringing, I I lived in Glide, Oregon, which is, probably never heard of that, which is up the river east of Roseburg, and um, it was a rough little logging mill town. I think 80% of all the families there were either loggers or mill workers. And, um, and, and I struggled in some measure to fit in. I was still growing into my big puppy feet, and I wasn't very athletic much of that time. And, and, and so that period of time in my life was a struggle. And... I probably would have sold my grandmother for a little recognition. Um, And yet, 
Um, God's grace is pervasive. Um, you know, the influence of my parents and, and, and other Christians in my life, I, I still prayed and I still, I didn't turn away from God during that time. And then I, I entered, a, there was kind of a period of, of revival in my life in my senior year in high school. Um, at that point, I all of a sudden grew up to be 6'5", and I was the biggest kid in the school, and all of a sudden, I was able to be athletic, and I, God gave me some confidence. And at that point, I dedicated my life to Christ. I told him that, I remember it was just after Christmas, that I would go anywhere he wanted me to go. I would. I wanted to serve him. And I remember for a period of time, several months afterwards, I would bring my Bible to school every day and try to share Christ with people. Um, and it was difficult for me then. It was a difficult environment. I only knew of about two, maybe three Christians in my entire high school. Um, and yet, that was a formative time in my life. I, after I graduated high school, I went off to University of Oregon on an athletic scholarship. Um, and I'm, so I'm a legitimate Duck fan. And um, at that time, there was some, some struggle in my life. There were times that I kind of got lost my focus a little bit on, sure, I was involved with Young Life for a while as a volunteer Young Life leader in Campus Crusade for Christ, and yet there were times in, in my athletic involvement, I, you know, I was going to go to the Olympics, and I was going to be great, and well, that never happened, um, but, so I, but I lost a little focus then, um, and yet God was faithful. He continued to draw me. He continued the promises that I made to him. He hadn't forgotten. I, after I graduated from, from University of Oregon, I became a, a science teacher. I took a job first in Astoria, Oregon. And it was there that I met my wife. I met Lynn. I had been... Uh, probably met her after I'd been there eight months or a year. Uh, met her through a college uh, fellowship group. And during that period of time, uh, again, I was, it was really the first time that I personally was involved in a church because I wanted to go to church. I wanted to be involved. And again, it was a time of revival for me. I, was very much involved in a little Baptist church there. And we would even go, uh, there's a team of people that would go door to door, and I was involved with that. And, and just, just loving being involved in a local church, the, the power of that. Um, and so after three years in Astoria, my wife and I were married in 1985. Um, and... Uh, and, and we began to make plans, too. She, her testimony is different. She was saved from, 
from a life of partying and drugs and sin, and, but it was real. And, um, and she felt called to go to India as she heard some missionaries. And, and, and I began to feel that same call to go overseas. And so I taught high school for seven years in just outside of Astoria. And then we, we, I'd resigned my job, and we felt called, that God was calling us to go overseas to, to serve God in India. That was in 1989. And after a, a year or two, I spent a year in, at Multnomah School of the Bible then. Now it's Multnomah University. And in, in that time, I... Uh, um, you know, I was pretty excited about what God was going to do with us. And, and then Lynn, my wife Lynn, was diagnosed with uh, um, lupus, which is, can be very debilitating. And we began, so it's like, well, we'll take a year a term off and just see what's going to happen. And then shortly after that time, maybe another, uh, probably another year, we were still kind of... Sh- deciding what God wanted to do with us. Then our youngest son was diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency. He doesn't he didn't produce growth hormone and he had to eventually have shots of growth hormone. And at that point it closed the door for us. We were not able to go. The cost of the shots, if we were to pay for them, would be about forty thousand dollars a year. And we just were not able to pursue that. And plus, if I was to go to India, those, at that time, it just wouldn't have been available, those, the technology for that. So God closed the door, and it, we, it was a transition in my life. Okay, now, now what? God, what, you, what have you prepared us for? So I, um, I worked a job in Portland for a short time, maybe a year. And then I heard of the opportunity to, to work as a chaplain at Union Gospel Mission, it, uh, working with homeless people, and I had the opportunity to run a, a, a new life program, a discipleship program where people at the mission would set aside a year of their life to try to change their lives and deal with their addictions and struggles. And so it was a good opportunity, and it was really good for my growth. I did that for... 18 years, I worked at the at UGM in Salem, and, and during that time, I also we moved to Dallas when we first came. Didn't want to live in Salem, and uh, uh, probably two years into moving to Dallas, we started coming to Bridgeport. So I can't count. We've been at Bridgeport for 24 years, I think, 23, 24 years. Our children have grown up here. Um, we love this place. We love the people here. Um, it's family to us. Um, we're very, by the way, very grateful for the time in India. Bridgeport loved us and has loved us and supported us. And then after Micah grew up finally, <laughs> we were again free. And, and, and still that was in our hearts, in my heart, nagging the desire to to go and and bring the gospel to people who are unreached. And, and that's really our passion. My passion is, is unreached people, not just individuals, but when I say unreached people, 
large groups of people that have no opportunity to hear the gospel. And that's been my passion for a long time. And, and so we were drawn back to that. And uh, it took us a little while after, at about the age of 17, Micah was done with growth hormone shots, and, and he grew up. He's bigger than me now. Not quite taller, but he's like 6'4 and 280 pounds probably. He grew up. Um, and, you know, God was gracious in all of that in his timing. You know, we don't, I still don't know why we didn't end up going to India then, why that didn't happen, why God didn't allow that to happen. But we started the process again. It took us about four years from that time before we finally had raised support and had gone back to India. And so now we've been in India for eight years. The last, last eight years we've spent mostly in India. Um, living among Muslim people uh, who are a minority in India and very un- largely unreached. And so that has been our passion. Um, as most of you know, and we're a little bit in transition now, my wife uh, a month and a half ago just got out of the hospital. She was in the hospital for 85 days with a major infection in her colon and and they end up eventually having to remove her entire colon and uh, and some other parts. It took a long time for her to heal. And, and we're still finding out what are the ramifications of that, what's going, you know, what will God do with us next? So we're in transition, seeking, praying to God, okay, what do you want next? Um, and so that's... It's still my passion to do ministry, to reach out to people, to, to bring the gospel to people, especially those who have no opportunity to hear it or who haven't heard it before. And, and so in terms of being an elder, I, I want to be a part of, of seeing Bridgeport be strong and healthy as a, as a fellowship. I want to see Bridgeport be effective in reaching the neighborhood around in Falls City, Monmouth, and all around. Um, That's what God has tasked us with. Go and bring the gospel. Um, Go unto all the nations, all the world, and and bring the gospel. So, um, I, I think that's probably enough about me. I'm, I, I'm excited to be back uh, with, with all of you in fellowship. I'm excited to be a part. I've always been excited to be a part of Bridgeport. It's been wonderful with our family to have our family grow up in this place. Um, and so as long as God allows that, we'll continue here. Um, and I don't, again, as I said earlier, I'd, I want to be involved in ministry as much as I can. And so, and I want to, in any way, if I can help others find, find their gifts, grow in their, in their faith, and, and help them to become effective in ministry, I, I want to do that also. So, um, with that, I would like to spend a little bit of time in Scripture. I don't know about these if you're supposed to have a time, if you want to ask me any questions. But <laughs> but I also, again, want to just say, in these last 
three months of Bridgeport has been has been wonderful to us in terms of of you know bringing us meals and cards and visit visit people visiting and encouraging us. Um, you are a family. Thank you very much. We love you. We are indebted to you. Um, today, I was kind of impressed to talk about a really pleasant subject, death. Maybe it's a little bit appropriate in terms of with Easter's coming. Um, and maybe not death so much in the physical sense of our physical bodies dying and decaying, although I am experiencing that as I limp around a little bit. Um, but, but, but that concept of death we find in Scripture a lot, and not only physical death, but, of course, spiritual death. We also find that, as we talk about that, that the Scripture is full of contrasts. Con- I can't say that word. Contrasts. Um, light and darkness. Grace and works. Spirit and flesh. Heaven, hell, Freedom, bondage, love, hate, life, death. And in all of those contrasts, we see that God is in the middle of them. God is, when God enters those, we see him bring the other side of the contrast. Light enters darkness. God brings light. God brings freedom to bondage. God brings life where there's death. It's one of the wonderful things about our faith and relationship with God is that, is that he changes things. Um, a, a good physical example of a contrast that's very vis- visual, Mount Whitney, which is in central southern California in the Sierra Nevadas, is the tallest mountain in the contiguous United, uh, the 48 states, the lower 48 states. Um, it reaches an elevation of 14,505 feet. Um, and in a very strange contrast, just 85 miles away from Mount Whitney is the lowest geographic part in North America, Death Valley. And Death Valley is 284 feet below sea level. And yet, on a clear day, if, if you are able to climb to the peak of Mount Whitney, you can look across the plain and you can see Death Valley, the highest place on earth and the lowest place on earth. And it's a contrast in several ways, obviously in other ways. Death Valley is appropriately named Death Valley it's, it's, it's had the highest recorded temperature possibly on earth of, of 35 degrees, excuse me, of 135 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it's obviously, it's dry, it's flat, it's, 
biologically lifeless. Very few living things live there other than foolish humans who go there for recreation. Um, and you can actually, from Death Valley, if you look through the heat waves on a clear day, you can look up and see the heights of Mount Whitney with its snow fields and alpine meadows in the distance. It's quite a contrast. And Death Valley is appropriately named Death, Death Valley in that if you are there, you don't have any water. In a very short time, you'll become dehydrated, suffer heat stroke, and die. Um, and it's, it's a good picture for us of death. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's miserable. It's, it's not a place that we can live very long. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that, that contrast. I want to start today in Scripture in, in looking at Ephesians chapter 2 as we talk about death. Starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 1 through verse 8. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. When you get old and your mouth gets dry, it's it's difficult. I can't even eat a, eat a bag of chips without sipping water all the time. Um, whoops. So verse 1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not a very comforting verse. We were dead. That's our condition. We were born dead in our trespasses and sin. And if you think about what does that mean, you know... Well, it's not exactly a physical death. People, I was born, I moved, I ate, I grew. But it's talking about a spiritual death. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't say diseased or disturbed or dysfunctional. Or disabled. It doesn't even say hoping to get better. It's, it, it means dead. 
um, unresponsive. And again, we as humans, we have relationships and we grow and interact. And yet, on the inside, there's something missing. We're in our relationship with God, who is our source of life, we are dead, we're disconnected. Um, in essence, we're born in Death Valley. And you can see Mount Whitney in the distance, but you can't go there. Dead people can't climb out of Death, death Valley. A few weeks ago, I, I went for a walk. Um, I try to go for a walk every day. I went for a walk uh, down the railroad tracks down by the mill in, in Dallas. And I went out, and uh, I usually can't go very far without sitting down these days with my back troubling me. And so I sat down on a rock there on the side of the rail, grade, the rail bed there, and I saw in front of me a branch that somebody had cut off of a tree. And it was laying on the ground, and... As I looked over it, it looked like it had been there for about two weeks. Somebody had cut it off, not yesterday, but somewhat recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And, and I just noticed, looking at it, that, that it had buds. There were leaves that were budding out of the branch um, throughout the whole branch. It was about 15 feet long. Um, and I was surprised by that because it was a branch laying on the ground, and yet it had leaves growing out of it, or just the buds, the beginning of leaves. And I looked at the, those little buds, and I looked over at the tree where the branch had come from, and the, they looked the same. They were just as much green, and they looked the same as the ones on the tree. And I thought to myself, um, the cells, the end of the branches somehow don't know that they're cut off, that the branch has been cut off yet. Um, they're growing leaves. And yet I thought, you know, as it gets a little warmer in April, pretty soon those leaves are going to die and turn brown. And, um, and even though some of the cells at the end of the branch didn't know it, they were dead. They didn't know it yet, but they were dead. Um, and that's true for us. When we're separated from God, we don't always know it. We don't always even feel it all the time, but we're dead. He is our source of life. He is the source of life. He is our source of nourishment. He's our source of purpose. Um, and like the branch that will never produce green leaves, the cut branch, never produce sweet fruit, the same will be true for us. If we're separated, we're dead. In, in Romans chapter 5, this, we're told this predicament, this situation comes to us because of the first human, Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, 
And in this way, death came to all people. And notice the qualifier, quantifier, all people. Death came to all of us. We're all dead. We've all been separated. And our condition is death. And, and, you know, a dead branch, we'd all like to be our own, our own living tree. But a dead branch, that branch on the ground, couldn't be a tree. It couldn't be its own tree. The only way that it could live would be if somebody, if somehow somebody took that branch and grafted it back into the living tree so that it could live. Otherwise, it was dead. And that's our condition. John Calvin... He summarized that situation in, in uh, Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1, saying, He, Paul, does not mean simply that we're in danger of death, but he declares that it was a real and present death under which they labored. A spiritual death is nothing more than the alienation of the soul from God. We are all born as dead men, and we live as dead men until we make until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. And we need to have the life of God, the life of Christ, brought back into us. And that's true. We find there are many scriptures, actually, that talk about death and our condition of death. There are scriptures that talk about not only our death, but our depravity. Um, Jeremiah 17, a familiar verse to many of you, 17, 9, and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart is desperately sick. There's something terribly wrong with me. Apart from the life of God. Or Romans 3, which quotes from the Old Testament. Romans 3 Starting in verse 10, I'll read a few verses. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God in their eyes. That is our human condition. We all want to be good. We all want to be respectable. And yet scripture says that that's our condition. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we are dead. Um, That's the way that we were born. Um, Continuing in Ephesians 2, let me continue in verse 2 and beyond. Looking at verses 2 and 3, it talks about our... Our walk, um, in which you formerly, he's talking about our sins and trespasses in verse 1, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among them we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And just looking at a couple of phrases in those two verses, um, according to the course of this world, where did we get this? We walked in sin, it says. We were walking in sin. Where did this come from? How did we start doing that? Well, one of the ways, not all of the ways, one of the ways is according to the course of this world. Um, As we look at culture around me, other dead people around me, um, as we influence each other, as we grow up in that culture, we believe some of the things that might not be true in that culture. Um, We accept the morals of that culture and their purposes. Truth is lost sometimes. Um, We often don't even, today more than ever before that I can recall in American history, in the U.S. history, People don't think for themselves anymore. We're influenced by others around us. And we, we listen to and believe their talking points, the narrative they have. Um, it's true. So we're what we, according to the course of this world, it says. And then it says in verse 3, or excuse me, in the second part of verse 2, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. And the second way that that comes to us is that basically Satan, right? We're, we're marching to the beat of Satan's drum. We're directed, our culture is directed and we find that our lives are directed by him. And that's part of being dead. And then in verse 3, it goes on. What does it actually look like when we do that? Well, verse 3 gives us a clearer picture. We lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, it's, you know, that's pursuing pleasure. It's trying to fill my own emotional crave. I mean, my own physical cravings and, and sometimes living by my emotions. You know, we often hear in our culture the statement, how could it be, so, how could it be wrong if it feels so right? Um, feels right. And yet, we're focused on what it feels like for me. But we're focused on, we're living in a world that focuses on pleasure, leisure. Where, where does that leave room for God's truth? And it's true, you know, does God, does God not like pleasure? Is God against pleasure? No, he made it. He made our emotions too. And yet when we focus on pleasure, we focus on fulfilling our own physical desires and being comfortable in every way, what does it do to us? Well, it makes us selfish. It makes us focus on physical things and not on God himself. And we forget our relationship with God because we're so focused on 
the physical around us. Remember, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And when we focus on the physical things and pleasure, we're not doing that. We won't focus on that. And the second part of verse 3, it says, first we lived in the lust of the flesh, and then, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And part of being the living in death is that we live under the wrath of God. We have rebelled against God as I pursue my own purposes. My, I, want to, I don't want anyone else to rule me. I want to live life the way I want to live it. Um, I want to seek my pleasure. I want to seek my comfort. Then we're in rebellion against God. And But God created us. God created us in his own image. That we would glorify him. That we would live in a relationship with him. And we're not living for the purpose that he made us. And we're in rebellion. So we're children of wrath, it says here. It's interesting, if you look at those three verses describing death that we were born into. Verse 1 basically says we're dead. Verse 2 says that we're enslaved, that we're slaves. Verse 3 says that we're condemned, condemned by God. It's a terrible place to live. Wonderfully, the next verse, verse 4, the next two words are very significant. It says, but God. And whenever you read those two words, get ready for something significant. Because God is the God of contrast. And you're going to see a contrast when you see those two words. We lived in death, but God. And it continues on. Let me, let me read that again. I'll read it out of... Now, I have the New American Standard, and I'll, I'll read it out of the ESV here, as is in your pew Bibles. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. What wonderful words. But God, because of his great, um, being rich in mercy and because of his great love, And those are significant words to think about. God is rich in mercy. He knows our condition. We are born dead, but he's rich in mercy. He's concerned about us. And he loves us. And and it's a great statement. Great love by which which he loved us. And I think we can personalize that in your condition, in your world. His great love by which he loved us. You, as you lived in all the struggles, as you lived in your death, God loved you. His love reached out to you. And I would say even, you know, the love of God demands a response, of some kind of response. Some people run away from it. Some people shake their fist at it. And some people embrace or accept the love of God. But I think the love of God, which is incredible and fantastic and great, 
It demands a response in our life. What is our response? How do we respond to the love of God? And then verses 5 and 6, because of his great love, what did he do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A couple things he did. First, when we were dead, he made us alive. Miracle. He raised us. He gave us life. It's a wonderful thing. And again, that's contrast. Death, life. Death Valley, Mount Whitney. Coolness, hotness. Um, um, and it's interesting when it says even we were, even when we were dead. It's a little bit like you, the very similar verse in Romans five eight that says, "While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." And in the midst of our death and misery and separation and rebellion against him, we weren't seeking God. We weren't looking for anything different. In the midst of that, God loved you. God gave you life. Not because I sought him. Don't listen to anybody that tells you it's because because they chose that. God chose it in his love. And it's interesting, by grace he saved us, which is kind of a reflection for what's coming later in verses 8 and 9. By grace he saved us. And then the next thing he did is he raised us up with him. Raised us up with him. Um, and I, the song, one of the songs we just sang, um, middle verse, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a, what a great picture of that. I don't know why I get so emotional. Um, and it's actually that those words are a picture of Peter. Remember when Peter was in prison um, and the angel of God came to him and he thought it was a dream at first and his chains fell off and the angels had come and he followed and and they simply walked out of the prison. Um, it's descriptive of that. He was a prisoner, and God delivered him miraculously, completely. The power of sin was broken. Um, he raised us up with him. Our only part, as like Peter's part, was is simply to walk out of the dungeon. We're just called to leave, to walk out of that prison. And then the last, set, the last statement made, um, seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's easy to read over that. Think of what the significance of that. Where, where is he seated? Who is he? He's the king of the universe. The king of kings. Seated with him in the heavenly places. We're talking about the throne of God. And you are invited. He takes us from death 
He raises us to life, and then he seats us with him on his throne. What an incredible contrast, isn't it? Seated with the king of kings. Is there any possible way that we could be more privileged? Could God give us any more than that? I can't imagine what it would be. A new Corvette would not suffice. Um, Grace of God. So I, I just want to finish, um, I, and it'll take me, a, I'm a slow finisher. Um, uh, I want to finish by talking in a more practical way. How do we do that? How do we escape our death? How do we escape being slaves or prisoners to sin? In, in, in Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, let me just, just read that quickly. We'll spend the rest of our time in Romans 6 in the beginning few verses, but let me read the end here. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one of, of whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, are one, you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, and, having, and have become slaves of righteousness. And it's, there's a very significant statement there that, do you not know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey? We're slaves to the one we obey. If we obey our selfish desires... And if we obey our physical desires, we become slaves to that. That's what it says. Or we can become slaves to God. It's, it's an interesting statement. Um, there's, for us old people, there's a, a musician who couldn't sing, but who was popular. His name was Bob Dylan. Um, and... Uh, he, but he's, you know, he wrote a song, he, he was thinking about Christianity for a period of, in his life, and he wrote a song, you got to serve somebody. And, and there's some great words in that. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Um, that's good theology. The reality is, if you choose not to serve God, you'll serve something else. And I would say to you that sin is a cruel master. Um, I'm not sure I have time. There's a story I better skip, I think. (laughs) We'll move on. Um, It's true that slaves, I'll just shorten that picture a little bit. In America... We, there was slavery at, at one time here. And after, at the end of the, which was a terrible era, but at the end of that time, at the end of the Civil War, first Lincoln, President Lincoln, made the proclamation of emancipation. Um, emancipation um, and then uh, it took some time, but slaves were freed. But interestingly enough, for many of those slaves, 
after receiving their freedom, many of them didn't, I don't say many, some of them didn't actually want to be free. They were afraid. They had been slaves all of their life. They didn't know anything else. And so they made an agreement with their former masters to just still be their slaves. Uh, There were others who were desperate to be free and who immediately took their freedom and and began to live separately. But it's a funny pattern with us as humans. Sometimes we find ourselves locked into that slavery that whatever we're connected to, we can't get away from it. Um, So... Uh, let's, I want you to look in Romans chapter 6. I mean, again, we read that earlier. Andrew read that earlier. Let me read it again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died... uh, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Um, we'll, We'll cut a little bit of that out, but... There are some very important verses there. Um, in verse 1, as he, he, just, he asks a question in verse 1. It's an important question. Um, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we continue sinning if, God, if we can be forgiven? We are born in sin. Should we continue? And of course, his answer, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And by no means, maybe is putting it, uh, his meaning to say, the statement means, how could we think that? How could we ever think that? What a terrible thought. By no means. Don't consider living in sin. Don't go back. Um, In verses, I'll skip through some of this, but in verses 3 through 7, Paul has a logical explanation for why you and I have died to sin. 
basically, we were baptized with Christ, he says. Do you not know that you've been baptized into his death? We were, when we were baptized, it's symbolic, the fact that we died with Christ. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised with Christ. We are, we died with Christ to sin. We're dead to sin. And he goes through verses, again, three through seven, all of that to talk about why we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. And it's it's significant to look at that. Look at verse three. Do you not know, the word he uses, know, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized were baptized into his death? Verse six. For we know that our old self was crucified. And verse nine. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. These are things that we know. And we need to know them. Where it says in um, verse 6, we know it's a significant statement. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. Because we were crucified with Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. You don't have to do it anymore. There are other verses. It's not just this one. Uh, Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up to me. Um, We're freed from sin. We'll skip down through due to time. Let me get towards the bottom of that. Verse 11 might be the most important verse in that passage. It says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it even so refers back to verse 10, where Jesus is dead to sin, or has died and is now alive to God. He says, just like he's dead and alive to God, even so, you need to think the same way. And consider, what is that? It's a think word, isn't it? Consider yourself, think about it in this way, this is how you ought to think, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. You were dead in Death Valley, and now you're alive to God, in the peaks of sharing his throne. We need to think that way. And it goes on in the next two verses, and we'll, we'll finish with uh, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, a similar thought. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that it should rule you. Not only are you dead to sin, but don't let sin r- reign. Don't let it rule your life. Don't be a slave to it. You don't have to be a slave. You've been set free. Don't go back to it. Don't do that. Instead, uh, we are going to we're we're just supposed to serve God. We're asked to serve Him. And then verse thirteen is similar again. It's like He's repeating Himself, so you get it. If you didn't get it the first time, catch it the third time. Verse thirteen: Don't present the members of your body to sin, but present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't. Give yourself to sin. And that's a significant verse also. Because I think for a lot of us, 
we might even know that, you know, I was, baptized in, I was baptized into Christ. I'm supposed to be dead to sin. You might know that theology and understand that, but sometimes we still have a problem. Why is that? Well, for many of us, some of us, we've cultivated a deep, private love for sin. Maybe a particular sin. It's private. Nobody knows about it. But I I still like it. I'm not done with it. It won't really be that bad. It's, It's my private little sin. Of course, we know in verse 23 of this chapter 6, what what are the wages of sin? Paul writes, the wages of sin are death. Death hurts. Death isn't pleasant. Death, Death doesn't lead you to happiness. And that private sin is going to lead you to death. Kind of the same question that Paul addresses in verse 15, where he says, Yes, another question in verse 15. Um, where was I? I have too many scriptures in front of me. Um, I'll, I'll read it out in my Bible, but. Uh, anyway, he, he says. Should we, basically, should we go on in sin that grace might increase? No, we sh- may it never be. He says it again. We're free to worship God. We're free to serve God. And we're free then to have life as we do that. So I, w- I will just want to finish now. How do, I, how do I solve that problem? How do I, pro- you know, I have a, Maybe I have a love for sin. Is it easy to change what you want? Can you do that? I like fishing. Can I wake up tomorrow and say, I hate fishing? Probably won't happen. Um, I mean, unless I keep falling in the water enough times and, and, and miserable enough or I get really cold in the boat now that I'm old and I just, I don't like this anymore. Um, We don't change the things we like that easily. It doesn't change that quickly. God can do it. It's a process. How do we change? How do we choose to not love sin anymore? Um, I would say first that you probably can't do it alone. The first thing that we need to do is what? God, deliver me. We need to come to God and ask for his help with sin. Because we think we're strong. We think we're capable. We're not. We're human. There's something wrong. Something dead about being human. That's what scripture tells us. We need his deliverance. And not just once. Did he deliver us from sin just once? He delivers us from sin every day. Sanctification. First, I need to cry out to God. Second, I need to recognize, I need to think about it, I need to consider, sin is a cruel master. Do I want it? Do I really want that in my life? Do I want a little piece of death in my life? 
death will grow. We need to think about that. And three, are we supposed to live our Christian lives individually by ourselves? Um, in, in, in America, we're all independent. It's kind of our culture. Um, I can do it myself. Um, but that's actually not normal. It's interesting, when I went, lived in India, the Indian people are different. They're, they're pretty social. They live together. Families stay together. They help each other. Maybe we're weird. But I would say here, the way to overcome sin is not on your own. Reach out to a brother or sister. Have people pray for you. Be humble. Be willing to say, I'm not perfect. I need help. Pray for me. Support me. And sometimes when you just meet with brothers and sisters and talk and share, you're encouraged. You're strengthened. We strengthen each other. We need each other. Number four, you and I need an appetite, a deep longing for the presence of God in our life. How do you get that? Remember in uh, Matthew 13, uh, 44, it's the parable of the, of the treasure hidden in the field. The servant goes out. Um, the king, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in which a man found. And then he hid it again. And then out of joy over it, he went and, sp- and spent all that he had and bought that field. It's an interesting statement. It says in that verse, because of the joy. He had joy when he found the treasure. He saw how great it was and he wanted it more than anything else. And he sold everything he had to have the treasure. How great a treasure is Jesus? How great a treasure is life that God offers us? How great a treasure is it to be brought with him up to his, seated with him in the heavenly places, the king of the universe? How great a treasure is that? Everything you've ever touched or known, it's like Paul said, it's garbage. I count it but rubbish that I might gain Christ. How do we overcome sin? We need to be hungry and thirsty for the presence of God in our lives. He is the treasure. And and the last point I would make is kind of the hard one. You know, a lot of us are addicts in different ways. We're we're addicts. Um, and, And that means it's hard sometimes. And that means we fail. We try and we fail and we try and we fail and we try. And we say, oh, I can't do it. I'll never do it. But, but that's, God is still there for us. God doesn't give up on addicts, any addict. Um, and I think that a lot of times as we are struggling in this life, I, I'm reminded of that. You know, Lynn, when she spent 85 days in the hospital, I mean, there were a lot of, she was in pain all the time, a lot of pain. Um, and sometimes she would just say, Jesus, take me home. Is it worth it? Was it worth it? You know, I think of the words, Jesus, when he's on the cross, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Is it worth it? It is worth it. 
There's life ahead. There's life ahead. I think also testimony. Remember Nathan Johnson? Many of you know Nathan Johnson, a young man who had somebody threw a rock in Nicaragua or into his car, their car they were driving and smashed his face. And he was in agony, headaches and pain for, lots of pain for a year and a half. And yet, eventually, God healed him. And today, the pain is gone. Um, it's like that. Sometimes life is tough. It's hard. It takes effort to overcome. But it's worth it. Life is worth it. We don't want to live in Death Valley. Just in conclusion, one little phrase. We were all born dead in sin. But Jesus made us alive. Excuse me. Jesus made us dead to sin. We were born in sin. And now we're dead to sin. And that needs to be our position. And of course, alive to God. Today, as we finish, I want to do something we don't do very often at Bridgeport. Um, I want to give an invitation. (laughs) Um, And so I want, uh, maybe some of you, maybe you're just starting a relationship with Jesus and you're really, this whole idea of, of not doing what I want to do in, in my own, with my own physical body, doing what I want, or maybe some of that's just in something that doesn't make sense yet. But God offers a relationship to you, and I, he offers life. So and I would say if, if that's appealing to you, We'll we'll sing a really short song twice. And um, I I would invite you to come to make that commitment. I also, some some others, sometimes we just struggle with sin. Maybe there's a particular struggle that we have, a particular area of sin or a particular thing that I can't seem to overcome very easily or it keeps coming back. I invite you to come and someone will pray with you. Or maybe... There's just a thought in the back of your mind that there's something you need to change in your life. You need to change it and do something different. It's hard to change sometimes. I would invite you to come. Or maybe also just if you're convicted that there's something in your life that's maybe more important than your relationship with God. There's something in your life that you love more than him. And you, you want him more. I would invite you to come also.